Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. I want to be clear that whenever I see people doing the great resignation, when they're resigning, um, it's not usually from a place of peace and it's not usually from a place of, well, you know, I just think I'm going to quit my job today. Like I'm going to go out there and find my purpose and I'm going to just have this great, um, this great experience. You know, most of the time when people get to the point that they're going to resign without already having another position lined up, there's a lot of, um, emotional discomfort that comes with that. We're discussing career transition and the great resignation today with Melissa McClung, author of Mind Your Career, How to Job Search Like an Entrepreneur Without Becoming One. Melissa discusses trust, weaving your skills and competencies into your purpose, and the frustrations of the hiring process. Let's go hear more from Melissa. Well, good morning. It's Great to see everyone. It's pretty out starting to become Kansas City spring finally, and uh, great to be together again. We're spending time today with uh, Melissa McClung, my, I've been friends with for a few years. Melissa has just come out with her own book, Mind Your, it's scratched out business. So don't mind your business, mind your career. I thought that was really uh, witty. <laughs> um, job search like an entrepreneur without becoming one. So pretty cool uh, title, a very uh, eye-catching uh, title that you're uh, cover that you came up with, Melissa. It's awesome. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about, um, first of all, the book, and then I want to go into some of the insights about just what you're seeing, career searches, what folks are looking for, uh, what's attractive, and then some of the areas that we all know are challenged now is particularly around healthcare. And I know you've spent a lot of your career focused on healthcare. I know we were at the hospital a couple of weeks ago and every area was understaffed and, and mm -hmm. they were telling me they thought it would be years before they were back fully staffed again. So it's definitely an area of concern for all of us to see people leaving the, uh, the healthcare arena and what should we all be doing to help encourage others back into that area. But let's talk about the book. How did that sure. come about? When did you get inspired to think about a book and, and how did you do it? <laughs> Well, I think like most people, um, I kind of always had this idea that at some point I would write a book and, you know, I wasn't entirely sure what it would look like or what the topic would be, but at some point I would write a book. And then in October, um, I was having a meeting. There's um, a group of about six female CEOs and I were sitting down and we're doing our planning for 2022. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to just do it. I'm going to write the book this year. And my intention when I made that statement was that I was going to put all of the information, all of the research, all of the things that I felt like people really needed to know into just a, a free ebook that people could download and have access to that information. Um, but I was persuaded by the women in that group and then by other coaches and mentors that I had talked to, um, to go ahead and, and do it like I meant it, you know, just go ahead and go through the whole process uh, and uh, publish the book, still make it accessible, still make it something that a lot of people would have easy access to, um, but go ahead and have a really nicely finished uh, product. So I started writing the book in November and um, 
I wrote it in 17 hours and um, did that over the course of about six weeks um, and then walked through the editing process through the cover design formatting and then finally the publication a couple of weeks ago. So it's been a pretty quick turnaround. I feel like it's the only thing I've been doing in my life for the last three months, um, but it's, it's definitely been a, a fun journey. So talk about the book that changed your life, because it seems like you incorporated some of that into how you wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, so I actually even have a, a chapter in the book called The Book That Changed My Life. And um, the book that I really, um, I, I really resonated with strongly was The Lazy Genius Way by Kendra Adachi. And um, that book helped me really see things differently and that it's about a prioritization of the things that are the most important to you and quieting all of the external voices that say, you know, this is what you should want. This is what is important to everyone else. And it's really about identifying what are those things that are important to you in your ecosystem, to the people who you're interacting with. Um, and that, that has really been helpful. And I think that's the spirit of this book. It's applying some of those similar concepts to the job market, it's about saying, you know, what are your work values? What are the things that you bring to the table that nobody else can bring to the table? Um, how do you want to use those skills? Um, but taking it less from a self-only focused perspective and then taking it out into the world and saying, you know, how can I use these to solve problems for other people? How can I use this to serve other people? How do I get on board with the missions that other people have and by doing so really be able to launch my career in a different place um, with a lot more passion, uh, a lot more companionship along the journey. And it's just something that I've seen happen over and over for my clients. And I want to see that happen for more people in the world. You know, you hit on some areas of the book that I think a lot of candidates don't think of, particularly around things like social media and posting. I know there are folks on here that are very skilled at researching candidates, suppliers, people they're going to meet with. I do that. If I'm going to hire someone, I want to go to know what they're like when they're writing on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn, because they give you a little window into their soul. Yeah. What, what do you find when you talk to people about that? Are they surprised at that? Is that, uh, do they, they think that's unfair <laughs> that what you post out there can uh, affect your hireability? You know, not so much anymore. I used to do that conversation a lot with college age students. So whenever I was working in the university system, uh, whenever I was working with um, new professionals launching their career, you know, I would I would talk to people a lot about like, you know, be careful what you put on, be careful what you're tagged in, pay attention to what you're doing, like your your social media presence is your personal brand. And like that idea didn't resonate as much when I was talking to 21, 22, 25-year-old students, but now that most of the people that I talk to are mid-career, um, so a little bit older, a little bit more experienced, um, most of the time I just remind them that like the, it's more likely that you are going to get fired than hired based on what you post on LinkedIn. So you know, let's be really careful about what we post. We don't need to go out there and talk about how much we hate our job because our boss might just be like, well, maybe I don't need to have you here anymore then. Um, and I've seen that happen anecdotally enough that I'm able to share examples. And I think people understand that perhaps more uh, now in our culture and also 
with the, the people that I typically work with. Well, let's go to the job market and we're in the middle of what the press keeps labeling the great resignation. Um, part of that yeah. I think is, uh, is awesome that people are feeling liberated to go pursue their purpose and they may become mm -hmm. entrepreneurial. They may go start their own business. They may piece together three or four things, you know, so yeah. it's not all a negative, uh, but people definitely are seeking out something. What are your conversations with folks in the job market? Like what, you know, what are you seeing related to this great resignation and what are, what are folks looking for and what should, hiring folks be doing to attract those people? <laughs> yeah, I think those are really, really great questions, Randy, and I wish more people were asking those questions specifically. Um, so I, I want to be clear that whenever I see people doing the great resignation, when they're resigning, um, it's not usually from a place of peace. And it's not usually from a place of, well, you know, I just think I'm going to quit my job today. Like I'm going to go out there and find my purpose. And I'm going to just have this great, um, this great experience. You know, most of the time when people get to the point that they're going to resign without already having another position lined up, there's a lot of, um, emotional discomfort that comes with that. They're either burned out and their physical health is suffering, um, or they are feeling like they're in a rock in a hard place. So for example, for women, especially, I have seen a lot of women resign over the last couple of years because the schools and daycares were unreliable. They didn't know when their, their children were going to be able to be cared for. And so because of that, they felt like you know, my boss wasn't being as supportive or I felt like I was letting my team down and I don't really need the second income. We can kind of make it work if we can adjust things a little bit. And so they left the workforce, not out of some, you know, burning passion to be at home with their kids more frequently, but because they felt like, you know, we have these children, we need to care for them. So therefore I need to be at home to care for them when the school or the daycare is closed. Um, and I do see some people who are leaving, especially healthcare, um, because there was a breach of trust between the administrative staff and the, the frontline staff. Um, and I'm seeing that in pharmacies. I'm seeing that in even to a certain extent, like retail environments too, where there was a loss of trust. Um, some of that perpetuated by or exacerbated by the media. Um, but also a lot of that just be based on their personal experiences uh, that they, they feel like in a lot of ways, they're, personal circumstances didn't matter to their employers. And so when I talk to people and I talk about like, what's next? So we've had this resignation, we've had this, you know, I'm leaving the job market to go to do something else. When I talk about, you know, well, what are you looking for? What's really important to you? What are those values? A lot of the things that come up a lot is trust, flexibility, and it's about that ability to work within passion. Um, and I think that the way that I describe that in the book, and I think something that's really important for both employees and employers to understand is that there is a way of working that balances your energy optimally. Um, when you are in a state that is um, described in psychology as flow, so where you are basically losing track of time or you're doing deep work, there's a lot of different words for it. Um, but when you're in that state more frequently, you have more energy at the end of the day. So when you get to the end of the day, you're not drained. You don't feel like you need to just sit in front of the television and zone out, but you actually have enough energy to 
play with your kids, to, you know, walk your dog, to go for exercise. And um, the two enemies of that are anxiety and boredom. And so people don't want to be bored and they don't want to be anxious at work. They want to have that kind of maximum productivity that can only come when they spend more of that time in that flow state. So how do you in counseling folks help them figure out what that might be? <laughs> you know, they know that where they're at, isn't it. I'm assuming, you know, when they're just quitting with no job, they don't know what it is they're heading to. They're just getting away from something, but they haven't figured out what to go to. So how do you help coach folks of what to seek out and where to head next? Well, I, I think there's a lot of truth in the perspective of that people don't really leave companies, they leave managers. Um, and I think that that's where it ties in a lot to this, the, the concepts and topics that you guys talk a lot about in lessons and leadership is a concept of like that one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with the person that's hiring you matters perhaps even more than the, um, than the mission of the company. And I'm not going to say that the mission of the company doesn't ever matter because it does. And there are some people that are more driven by that than the personal relationship. But generally speaking, um, where we start is we talk about skills and we say, OK, what skills are you using right now? What skills do you want to continue using? What skills are you using when you're losing track of time? You know, are you paying attention to those things? Are you addressing those things. And, you know, as human beings, we want to grow and change over time. You know, we're not immutable beings. Like we have to grow and change over time. And uh, especially when we're talking about a knowledge economy, which, you know, by and large, most of us work in a knowledge economy now, um, you want to grow in competency over time. So those skills, you want to deepen them, you want to broaden them, you want to uh, express them in different ways. So we talk a lot about skills. We talk a lot about competencies um, and we say, OK, well, what what other jobs other than the one that you were doing uses these and doesn't use these other ones that perhaps you don't want to be hired for because you've done them for a long time and you're not interested in them more, anymore. So we talk a lot about um, how do you find positions that match those things and or how do you communicate with other people what your skills are so that you can really um, solve those problems and, and all hiring is is problem solving like we as business owners hire people when we have a problem that we either can't solve because we don't have the time for it or because it's you know a little below where we need to be operating on a daily basis and so i think that benchmarking it as problem solving and teaching them how to walk through the conversation um, during the interview process or doing during that prospecting process is really really important So someone in healthcare, they've spent a tremendous amount of time and money training, building skill sets, doing continuous education in radiology or cardiology or nursing or whatever, and they're just walking off and leaving. What do they go to? What, what are they looking for and how are you helping them take those skills and go seek new things that are totally unrelated to being a, a a radiologist, but there are some skills that they must be able to take and present somewhere. What are folks doing that are leaving? You know, it's funny that you had mentioned that the call, like some of those people are going out and being entrepreneurs. And that's true. I do talk to people who, you know, will say, well, I used to be, okay, so I'll give you a, a personal example. So my virtual assistant, 
for example, um, that I use in my business, she was a chiropractor. And she's not a chiropractor anymore. She's a virtual assistant because it's more flexible. She can travel wherever she wants to travel. Um, she can do, or she can work whatever hours she wants to work. I don't have set hours for her. I have tasks. So she completes the tasks and she moves on with her life. Um, and I, I'm seeing a lot of people that move into, you know, things like bookkeeping, into things like setting up people's dubsado, setting up, you know, the different systems that especially brand new entrepreneurs don't have a lot of experience setting up or older entrepreneurs or more experienced entrepreneurs don't have time to set up. So it's about, you know, solving those problems. It's looking for the problem and saying, you know, I could probably sit down and take 40 hours of online classes and learn how to do this and then apply this to a circumstance where I make money. And I think that that traveling and that location flexibility is very important to a lot of people. And one of the ways that we're seeing that impact healthcare is that while yes, there are fewer people in the hospitals right now, one of the things that has just exploded in healthcare is the concept of travel nursing or travel um, care. And the reason why we're seeing that is that people do want the flexibility to be in a place for a couple of weeks and then go to a different place for another couple of weeks or a month or two. They want to be able to go around and um, see different places and interact with people differently. Um, and while that's really good for the individual, for the system, it can actually be very hard for a hospital system to maintain um, a lot of travel personnel because uh, it, it changes the dynamic of the team. They're usually more expensive. They're insured at different rates and some things like that. So it does put some more burden on the system, um, but it's advantageous for the individual. So we're seeing a lot of that right now. It would seem like that would be really hard on just the whole concept of building a culture and building a team and team cohesiveness if the pieces are constantly coming and going. Yeah, I would and, agree and, with that. And I would think it's probably hard for people to feel like they're part of a team. They're more like a, an individual contributor, pinch hitter, aren't they? Yeah. More than part of yes. some culture. And I think, honestly, a lot of people are preferring that right now. You know, we've really seen a breakdown of trust in our society um, where people don't generally trust one another. They, especially if they have differing views on things. And so, you know, it's hard for teams to build good team relationships right now as it is. Um, you add in a lot of loss of trust with administrations um, because especially during the the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of lack of resourcing for frontline staff, but then the administration lost a lot of respect for the frontline staff too, because they were the ones taking pay cuts or losing their jobs in order to pay for the, the increased hazard pay for, for the frontline staff. So there was a lot of tension that happened um, in, in the healthcare system around that time. And uh, so I think a lot of people do kind of prefer this insular like, I can rely on myself, I can't really rely on anybody else, because they've been let down a lot over the last couple of years. And I think we as a society need to think about how can we rehabilitate that, because we're seeing it not only in, in the decisions that um, employees are making, but we're also seeing it in that interview processes are significantly extended. Um, 
there are what used to be two interviews to hire someone now is like six or seven. Um, people don't trust that they can really build a relationship with people online, but yet they're doing a lot of the interviewing online. And so there's just kind of a mismatch, I think, between the actions and, and the decisions that we're making right now. Let's go get some uh, questions. Let's start with uh, Jeff. Hi, Melissa. Great seeing you again. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I'll uh, echo uh, Randy's remarks. Love the title of the book and the book cover. It's uh, very, very cool. Um, yeah, so I'm interested in your uh, process. So you started in November, and yeah. did I hear you say you it took 17 hours? Yes. <laughs> yeah, tell, 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 tell us more about that. I'm just curious what your process was when, between start and finish. Sure. So the first thing that I started with is something called a mind map, where it's basically just dumping everything you can think of on a piece of paper and start connecting the dots. Um, and then the next thing that I spent a lot of time on, I spent almost four of those 17 hours on outlining the book um, and really digging into where do I want things to fit? What do I want things to in, be included? Um, how do I want to lay this out? And, you know, I have a little bit of an advantage because I'm already doing this with clients. And so it's a process that's pretty familiar to me. Um, and so I was able to walk through that process a lot of, uh, through a lot of it. Um, and then honestly, for each chapter, I would sit down, do the mind map for each chapter, do another more detailed outline before I would sit down and write. Uh, and then I prim primarily followed a formula for every chapter where I started with a relevant story. I then did the bulk of the teaching and then I wrapped it up with sales copy essentially for why you should read the next chapter. Um, and having that formula really made it a lot easier for me to sit down and be productive during my writing time. Yeah, that's phenomenal. It's like uh, Abraham Lincoln, if he had six hours to cut down a tree, spends more of it uh, sharpening the saw and stuff. There you go, the outline is critical. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Can't wait to read it. Yeah, I, I hope you do. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts. I've always appreciated your perspective. So it's really 17 hours of capturing what you already knew and was already in your heart. It wasn't like you're starting with a blank page. You're doing this stuff all the time. And so it's yeah. like, what are the things I want to put down on paper? Yeah. And I, I have a good memory and I read avidly. So a lot of the... Um, a lot of the citations were rather easy for me um, because these are the things that I, these are the books that I recommend to my clients all the time. The ones that I'm, I'm referencing in the book are the ones that I, you know, either have on my desk or, you know, I have practically memorized because I've read them a few times. So. Let's go over to Andre. Hey, Melissa, good to see you. I've never met you, but uh, you sound like you know what you're talking about. And uh, I love that you wrote that book in 17 minutes. And I love the comment of getting spent four hours shopping the axe and two hours shopping, right? Makes total sense, right? Um, I'm around a lot of this discussion, the great resignation, great reevaluation, all these kind of topics. I'm around a lot of leaders that are talking about return to work. I, I'm wondering from you, um, what are you hearing from a leadership perspective, right? There are, I think there are several trains of thoughts, right? One, we're just going to bring people back and the people that don't want to come back. Well, so what? And, and, and I believe in listening tours. I believe we need to listen 
to our, our, our people. They're their greatest asset we have in an organization. What are you hearing from a leadership level, not the employee level, but what are you hearing from a leadership level on how they're approaching what decisions they make inside their organization? You know, I think that's a great question. And I think the thing that I'm hearing a lot from people is that, sure, we value our people. We, we value our people very much. Most, most business owners that I talk to, it's not like they just don't value their people, but they're also in business. And, you know, they don't run social services clubs like this. This is a business. Work does have to get done. And so people have to be expected to do work. Now, I think where that happens uh, is a lot based on the kind of work that you do. And um, it's based a lot on um, regulations in your industry. And it's based a lot on practical applications about team building and you know all of those things some teams can be distributed and some cannot be and so the idea that we can somehow move all workers to you know work wherever you want whenever you want is just not reasonable to expect from a leadership perspective i think a lot of employees expect that but i just don't think that from a leadership perspective um, there's quite that naivety about the realities of the situation. Do, do you think though, because that seems to be to me, if, if leaders are thinking that, it seems to be they've oversteered the car in my opinion, right? Because I think the listening toward would tell them that employees are not saying that I want to work completely work from home because that's what I'm only going to do. I think what employees are pushing back against is the ability to have their own autonomy a couple of days a week. And so if we don't listen, then we have this framework that says, well, I think the employees only want to come in and work, or only want to work remotely. And if you look at the data, it, they're not asking that. What they're saying is we, we've had school issues. We've had uh, daycare issues. We've had all these things. And I, as an adult, shouldn't have to ask or suggest that, hey, is it okay if I I think we need to be able to listen to what people are going to come back to work from and what's going to disrupt their life, right? And I think that becomes, to me, the problem with leadership, not all, but some leadership, because they're not listening. And that's why I like the listening tours, because what you're going to find is employees are asking for one or two days. And I think the other thing that it's forcing leaders to do is to get a little bit out of the comfort zone because all the stuff that used to happen, like we keep hearing the, the frame, the framework of, well, how do we create synergy? I mean, John didn't walk by the coffee cooler today. So how do I know what's going on with John? It's not that hard. Call a meeting, call a meeting to be um, collaborative, bring people in just because you want to just kind of get to know them and figure out what that's start every conversation I have with, uh, presenting with how people are doing it. What's odd about that is people will say, oh, business is fine. And I go, no, I'm not talking about this. Yeah. How are you doing? We don't even ask people, right? We don't want to even ask people because we might find out they're not doing well. And we may not have an answer as a leader. And so I just, I just want us to really be thinking because right now it's not an employer market, it's an employee market and, and job market's tight. And we've got to figure out this balance. And I think the listening tour does a lot of different things. So I just want to kind of get your opinion on that. No, I, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, the only thing I will say is that depending on what 
kind of employees you're trying to attract depends on if it's an employer or an employee market. Um, because okay. I, I will say that um, for people who are highly skilled right now, it is not very easy uh, to find a job. So I, I think that it really depends a lot um, when we're talking about somebody with a lot of education who does predominantly computer-based work, um, who's looking for something that's mostly flexible or remote only, um, those, those positions are a lot harder to find. And so employers have a lot more choice at that point. But I, I completely agree with you um, on those other things. And I, I think that, you know, Randy and I had this conversation, oh, I don't know, Randy, but it's like three months ago, four months ago about the concept or the difference between management and supervision and how making the transition from I'm a supervisor to I'm a manager of people is really important in leadership. Um, and I, I think that that to me was what was coming up as you were talking about this is can yeah. we change our mindset about what our purpose is as a leader? Right. In a lot of what Andre was talking about tied into that whole idea of that breach of trust you were talking about that if we can't build that trust and that relationship that, and even tie into what you were talking about supervisors, the old style way of leadership of I've got to have you here and manage you. Well, people found out for a lot of jobs that wasn't true. I, I don't have to be seen five days a week. I know what my job is. I know what I need to do. I don't need you to have your thumb on me every day. Just, turn me loose and let me go work. And most people I've talked to found themselves working more, not less because their yeah. commute time, they were scheduling a zoom and their commute time yeah. at home, they were doing something and they actually yeah. found themselves working more, not less, but those old style insecure, I won't even say leaders, just micromanagers. They want to see you, you know, um, that's part of that breach of trust, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's a lot of that is that breach of trust. Well, and, and, you know, Andre, one thing I want to add to what you were saying is that, you know, you can pretend to listen to people, but they see through that. You know, when you genuinely listen to people, there's like, there's no substitute for genuine interest. Like you have to be genuinely interested. And when you are genuinely interested, people will open up to you um, because that gift of listening is just not something that people get very often. It's very rare for someone to just listen to what you have to say. And when you can give somebody that gift, they notice it and they appreciate it. Yeah, I, I would jump in and say this, is that if you're not authentic about listening, don't do it, right? It, it, you're right to your point. They see right through it. And to me, it makes your situation as a manager or leader worse because they knew you weren't a really good manager anyway. And now you're pretending to listen because you're, you read a book or you heard a seminar and it said, hey, be a listener. And then you go in and you try to be a listener and you're really not a listener. And they know that. And so anything that you do, I just think be authentic. And, and again, we are dealing with humans. I just went through Father Justin Matthews social leader e-course about trauma and bias. And it's amazing. And what I will tell you is our organizations, every one of our organizations have employees that have trauma. Now they're not coming to you and saying, hey, I have trauma, but there's something going on in their lives and what they're judging you on as a leader is have you asked me about me? And are you only concerned about the work to Randy's point? We are productive. We work more 
when we're not at, at the office. And so my thing is we've got to do a little bit of extra stepping in terms of being able to make make sure that our staff, our employees, our 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 our, our middle managers are okay yes. and they're leading people in this pandemic, post-pandemic, in a way that is taking care of their employees first because at the end of the day you can say your clients are the most important things they're not your employees are your number one asset and if you don't take care of them you have no client yeah and i think to your point taking care of those frontline managers is the best way to take care of your employees too if your frontline managers the ones that they're interacting with on a daily basis have good skills have good listening and are authentic, who feel equipped to solve problems, that have good autonomy, those people will then pass that culture along to your employees, and it will be a very healthy system. Drew's question ties so well into our Andre was. I want to jump to Drew, and then we'll go back to sure. Dan. Melissa, I, I just going back to frame this question, back to some of the things you said earlier, I, I absolutely loved your comp the conversation you had about uh, women leaving the workforce because of families during covid and all of these things so i'm, I'm going to use a quote that i talk about often which adversity tends to reveal character it doesn't build it yeah so um going to that i'm going to come back and say you know as a leader i it's not that i need to see you i want to see you so during COVID, everybody was sort of, you know, pushed out. Uh, and then you have, and I'm going to use the manufacturing space because I love it so much. In the manufacturing space, hey, you can't work remote. So leaders, if you're going to be remote while your people are working in the plant, you are already revealing your true character. So yeah. you talk about listening. Sometimes it's not listening. It's sometimes it's just being there and mm -hmm. feeling the exact pain of your employees. So really to build on what Andre is asking, because I honestly think we could all talk about this all day, um, this curiosity, hey, listen, this is business, but I care about my people. And there is this balance piece that we've got to figure out because of remote workers. But let's be honest, not everybody can be remote. I'm mm -hmm. sorry, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, so how do you balance this? Hey, this is business. But as a team, we all have to understand that business and you build this team building piece tied to accountability for what everybody has to do. I'm just curious about what you reveal in your book. And then, of course, when I read your book, I'll tell you whether or not I feel it. <laughs> yeah. You know, Drew, you're not going to find the answer to this in that book, um, because prim primarily who I'm talking to in that book is um, not a manufacturing audience. It's primarily a college educated um, audience. But I will tell you that I grew up at the dinner table of um, two of the best entrepreneurs that I ever ever have known um, that work in a manufacturing environment. My grandparents have owned um, a manufacturing business for as long as I've been alive. And um, you know, my dad now currently works in the business. My uncle works in the business. It's a family business. And I know a lot about it. And what I will tell you is that they did not have the option to go remote. They do 
strict manufacturing processes. They didn't have a chance to go remote, but what they did was they paid attention to the things that were going on in their employees' lives, you know, to the, to the point that Andre made earlier. They listened and paid attention. And a lot of their employees are people that have been there for a very long time because, you know, yes, they have a policy for sick leave, but they also understand that sometimes situations don't fit within that. Yes, they have a policy for bereavement leave, but they also understand that sometimes those situations don't fit um, within that, that period of time. And you know they pay attention to things like right now, for example, inflation being what it is, groceries are much more difficult for people to afford. And so they look for ways to either make the vending machine food a little bit cheaper so that people can pick up some extra snacks at cost, um, or they look for ways to have appreciation luncheons when that makes sense. And so they look for ways to ease the burdens that most of their employees are facing at the time. And I think that um, taking that from that human perspective of like, you know, how can I serve um, the, the people that work for me, not from a charity perspective, because that never feels good to anyone, but from a perspective of saying, like, I see you and I honor the experience that you're having right now. No, I, I, I appreciate that answer. It's, it's a, um, I, you know, and again, I think that, that was sort of my impression as we start talking through remote workers um, my immediate thoughts went back to, hey, there are certain things you just cannot remote. And yeah. being a manufacturing guy, uh, being an army guy, I think infantry world, you're dealing with people. It's not just one class of people. You're trying to build a team that recognizes each of them add incredible value to the value stream of your organization. Yeah. And any engineer that doesn't appreciate the shipping and receiving guy needs to be moved somewhere yeah. else well, and, and drew you know to country. play on that to play on that army background like what's the most important thing in the army it's, it's sure it's training but it's also morale and when we're talking about team building especially in an environment where there's you know external pressures because the military deals with external pressures and life happening behind the scenes and all kinds of trauma and all kinds of things that are going on but then they work very hard on cultivating that morale and trying to take care of the things that they can take care of so that the soldiers don't have to worry about them when they're out in the field. And I, I think that we can learn a lot both from the military and also from manufacturing environments on how to take care of our employees. Thank you so much. Yeah. Let's go to Dan. Thank you so much for uh, joining us this morning, Melissa, and congrats again on the uh, success of your book. So kind of a gear shift, uh, but I, I just uh, reached out on LinkedIn and noticed you had over 17,000 followers. Yes. So a lot of people are talking and espousing, you know, building, building an online brand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm of the mindset that, you know, you should be careful listening to advice from someone who hasn't done uh, yeah, what you're trying to, to do. So was that mm -hmm. a slow and steady process or were there a few seminal moments that you, you think really helped um, create that kind of a followership, which of course just allows you to increase your uh, influence and reach? Yeah, it, I would say that it has been a little bit of a slow process. So I 
I developed my LinkedIn profile, I want to say in like 2008, 2009, something like that. I was graduating from um, from my undergraduate and I um, built or turned on my LinkedIn profile because at the time it was like an online resume or um, a Rolodex of the people that you knew. <laughs> new. And so I set it up then and I really didn't do a whole lot with it until I was um, working at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, actually, and I was doing their on campus recruitment. Um, and I was bringing in recruiters from different companies to recruit students. And so I used LinkedIn a lot um, to communicate with those recruiters. Recruiters are on LinkedIn a lot. So it's a pretty easy way to get in touch with them. And so I had grown my um, my connections to about 2000 people just through that experience and some other similar experiences whenever I was at the University of Missouri, Kansas or um, University of Kansas Medical Center. Um, and so I, I had built it up over that time. But whenever I went into business for myself um, in 2015, um, I started using LinkedIn a lot more effectively and efficiently. And it wasn't until 2018 when I had my second son that I decided that I was really going to focus my attention on LinkedIn. And I made a very concerted effort to both have a smart posting strategy, but also a connection strategy so that I would actually have conversations with the people that I connect with, because that's really important to me. I don't wanna just have vanity metrics of like, well, yeah, I have 17,000 followers. Like I actually want to know people. I want them to comment on my stuff. I wanna be able to refer people within my network to other people. Um, and so I uh, started that process in 2018 and that has been uh, the goal of my strategy since then. And, um, it's something that I teach entrepreneurs how to do. So if you're curious about that, I'm always happy to have a conversation with you about it because um, it really does matter in, in, overall. Your people are gonna check you out. If you're interviewing somebody, they're gonna be looking at your LinkedIn profile. Um, but the strategy for, I wanna have a good LinkedIn profile because I'm hiring is very different than I wanna attract employees versus I want to build more business. And those strategies are very different. Let's go to Kurt. Hey, thanks, Melissa, and, and thanks, Randy, for getting us together again on Thursday morning. I heard you talk early on about the healthcare market mm -hmm. and how mobile nurses, for example, um, are in high demand, so they can kind of call the shots, right? I'm a big supply and demand and economics guy. The demand is a lot greater than supply, so they're making that. And it's a fascinating industry in that you would like, it's highly skilled, and there's some real detail in caring for patients. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, my perception is, the qual with, with the traveling nurses or the mobile nurses, my perception is the quality of care broadly may diminish when a nurse spends two weeks here, a month there, six months on that contract, and then says, I want to go down to the Keys in Florida and do it or over to Hawaii. So my broad perception is in, is in an industry, there's got to be different standards in place to ensure that the quality of healthcare remains consistent as historically. So I'd love to hear your comment on that. Then I have a follow-up on where the supply and demand and where 
others in other professions may have that desire for mobility or flexibility in where there may be another application. I'll never do it, but my entrepreneurial brain thinks of some ways in other industries where there may be a huge application. Because I know that mobile staffing in the healthcare, that industry is exploded. It's, it's a huge business now. And I have some yeah. other thoughts on where it could go in other industries. So well, if you could answer your thoughts on that first part would be It'd be terrific. Sure. So I think that you have to remember that travel agencies are companies too. And their contract is, yes, with the provider, but it's primarily with the hospital. The providers mm -hmm. are not necessarily disposable. I don't want to give the wrong impression there, but they have 10 other people that would take the place of that provider. They have to maintain the relationships with the hospitals. So if they brought in providers that were not, um, we're not up to quality standards. For example, they're not going to keep that relationship with the hospital for very long. So they have a vested interest in making sure that nurses have the appropriate training, but also there's an interstate compact license that's required to do any kind of travel nursing um, that has kind of a, a a component of evaluating someone's performance um, to make sure that they are performing well. And, you know, certainly if there's any sort of ethical or, or problematic behavior that's reported on the license, so it then would prohibit them from working as a travel nurse in the future. So things like yeah. mixing up medication names or things like that. So I don't know that I would agree with you that the quality is necessarily decreased, but what I do think, um, makes that difficult is the is the team relationship right so if the not the doctor doesn't know the nurse or the nurse doesn't know the doctor um that can perhaps influence somebody's experience of the healthcare system but i think when, where we're at in reality is that that's mostly the case even among um among teams that are already firmly established is that there's enough variability both in schedule and um in staffing that more or less, we're we're seeing that even without the travel nursing component of things. Yeah. Okay. I, I get your take. When I with regard to quality, I I wasn't speaking of necessarily the technical qualifications, okay. but rather the relationship and yeah. how a team, a, a healthcare team, cares for a patient. Yeah. And there's no way that can be good if there's not a, on if the relationship isn't as good among the a the healthcare team and then b the healthcare team's relationship with the patient so yeah. no so, i completely agree with you on that so so for your to your point you know um patient feedback so patient perspectives on their care um matter a lot in reimbursement and you don't have as much leverage over a temporary worker as you do over a permanent worker in include in increasing um the the patient rating um which is a key component of value-based care and reimbursement yeah. so here's another industry i just and i don't spend too long on this where i think um provider or workforce flexibility is enormous the, i'm wondering if it could work in a model such as this um teaching k through 12 primary education teaching could what's happened in the healthcare, the nursing world, work in the teacher's world? 
probably, I mean, it could. Wow. Theoretically, I, mean, I, I just came up in my mind this morning. Yeah. I, I don't think so. And here's the only reason I think that is that um, when we're talking about demographics, um, a lot of the people that are going into travel nursing um, are of a different age demographic than the majority of the teachers. Um, and I think that life perspectives are going to change things. Like I don't ever talk to someone who's my age with two small kids that is like, yeah, I want to sign up to be a travel nurse. Nobody wants to not know where they're going to be the next six weeks when they have five and three-year-old kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're talking about nurses or nurses who are young, recently married, maybe not married yet, um, and they're wanting to travel the world, I think it's a, it fits really well, or older nurses who want to have breaks in between because they're, they're tired and their bodies hurt and they need some additional breaks. Travel nursing makes a lot of sense. But when we look at the demographics of a lot of the teachers, they're more, um, they're more likely to be in an age where they have other limitations. Ability might be a little more important. Okay, cool. Thank you. Let's go to Jenna. Hi, Melissa. I want to to the conversation around, uh, you were talking about building trust and it just was fascinating for me. I'd like to hear just from your perspective and your line of work. Um, what are you currently seeing that leaders or managers, um, like I'll say, uh, their practices of building trust aren't being effective. Like what, what are you, is there a specific trend in an industry or industries? Um, what are they doing that and what isn't working about it? And what do you think they could be doing differently? the hiring process loses a lot of people. Um, And I think that there are ways of setting up your hiring process in a way that both gets you the most effective employees without um, making people think they're jumping through too many hoops. So some of the things I very, very commonly hear back from people um, is that A, they don't like the generic response. I'm sorry, we went with a more qualified applicant, especially because in some cases and impact in a lot of cases, that isn't actually true. They just went with a different candidate. It wasn't a more qualified candidate because the person who applied actually was rather qualified for the role, um, but they just went with a different candidate or the first qualified candidate that they saw or, you know, the first 10 qualified candidates they saw, not necessarily that they went with a more qualified applicant. That phrase in particular really um, is like salt in a wound for a lot of people. Um, I think that one of the other things that people generally don't like and don't trust is when people offload their their natural intuition into a um, personality inventory during the application process. So employees are totally fine with taking a personality assessment or a work work assessment to help the team function more effectively, but people who are being considered for roles do not want to do personality assessments because they feel like it's a not very transparent part of the process um, and that that information can be used punitively toward them and they don't like that at all. And so um, I would suggest that if you're going through a hiring process, you pay more attention to crafting better quality questions um, and and trusting or building your intuition a little bit more than just doing a personality assessment. Because um, if if we're being honest here, most of us probably could do uh, the personality assessment for other people and you can learn how to hone that 
evaluative component in a conversation. And I just think you'll get a lot further with it. So I think that those are the two that I hear the most commonly from people. Um, I think in terms of why people are leaving managers, like where the trust broke down with that, a lot of it is about responses to external events. So it's like my mom got sick. She has long COVID. I have to go to a lot of doctor's appointments and I feel judged when someone keeps asking me why I'm out. And so it's not even necessarily that the manager or the, uh, the supervisor or leader is the one that's doing the judging, but because it's not communicated very well to the employee, the question feels like judgment. Um, and I think that probably the best thing that a manager can do there is when they start noticing the interpersonal tension to call it out directly. And I talk about in the book, Brene Brown talks about this, the story I'm making up right now. It's a very disarming strategy of saying, you know, the story I'm making up right now is that you're angry with me and I need to have a conversation with you about that. Can you tell me what, how you're really feeling? And I think that that's a very good strategy of cutting to the heart of like, hey, I'm noticing this thing and we need to talk about it because I care about you and I care about the ways that you feel about me. Wonderful, thank you. You mentioned people having to go to five or six interviews in the process. Mm -hmm. I can't really, uh, I pretty much know in the first 15 minutes, if I want you on the team or not, <laughs> I can't understand what takes six times to go talk about what is, what is driving as a particular industries, particular roles. What are you seeing that caused that? I would view that as a warning sign that these people are indecisive. They don't know what they want. If it takes six times. They have too many stakeholders is the problem. Randy is that they have too many people, um, you know, too, too many cooks in the kitchen. Um, in a larger business, um, oftentimes the, the concept of the hiring team is a good one. It, it, it helps prevent things like discrimination and, and you know, inappropriate decision-making, but there is, there is such thing as having too many people, having too many opinions, being too involved. Wow. And yes, it's a red flag, but it does happen <laughs> regularly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds, uh, sounds exhausting <laughs> to go through that. <laughs> it is. And it's exhausting for people, and it's, it, it really hurts their spirit to go through all of that and then to never hear back. Like, they'll just stop hearing back from somebody one day, and they have no idea what happened. And I think sometimes one thing we forget is, like, how important closing that loop can be for people's for people's spirit, truthfully, like it's not even just about the business perspectives or the perceptions that people have about you. It's just like, let's treat people like human beings and, you know, trust that they can handle a no answer, <laughs> just give them the no answer. But I might be naive about that. Well, in Kansas city, it's a small enough town that companies get a reputation and I'll have people call and ask about particular companies sometime. And what do you know about that? I'm like, I know it's just a churn. People are coming and going and coming and going and coming and going. So you better be careful. You better go ask a lot of hard questions. So yeah. you do develop a reputation in the market when people are going through those processes because they all talk <laughs> and pretty soon everybody knows that these places yeah. are places where you might want to be wary of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And then LinkedIn's just made it a lot easier for everybody to call you and say, who do you know there? Which <laughs> happens all the time that people will call uh-huh. and say, hey, I see you're connected with this person. What do you know about that place? So yeah, as you can imagine, since I have about 17,000 connections, I get that question a lot. And a lot of times my answer is like, uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was awesome spending time with you today. Thanks for uh, sharing some of your book and some of your insights and some of the things going on in the, uh, in the world. It was great to uh, talk with you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, seriously, guys, connect with me on LinkedIn. If you had other questions or you have something that you're like, what about this situation? Send me any questions. I'm always happy to have a conversation and set up a meeting. So hopefully you found some insights from Melissa that will help you either as a job seeker looking for an opportunity that allows you to be your best or as a hiring manager trying to build a team in today's challenging job market. You can find Mind Your Career at a major bookseller. And you can learn more about Melissa's work at lbdcareers.com. Now, let's get out there and get after it. Be courageous and go make a difference. I'll see you again soon.